The Big Bang is the observed truth, but there are details that haven't been quite worked out. It may have happened. It's just one explanation. Dark matter is a form of matter that does not interact with light, and so it is invisible to us. The first image to be shown publicly from the James Webb Telescope, the largest and most powerful ever launched into space. Its infrared capabilities enable it to peer through cosmic dust and clouds to detect light from the earliest stars. Welcome to the first episode of What's the Big Idea, a new podcast featuring University of Manitoba President Michael Benarosh in conversation with some of today's big thinkers. Together, they'll unpack the big idea that their work explores. We'll hear from an exciting and diverse array of voices from the UM community contributing to the cultural, social, and economic well-being of the people of Manitoba, Canada, and the world. In today's episode, Michael sits down with Nobel Prize-winning astrophysicist, University of Manitoba alum, and the Albert Einstein Professor Emeritus at Princeton, Dr. James Peebles, whose groundbreaking work is vital to our understanding of the universe, including topics like the Big Bang Theory and dark matter. The Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences has today decided to award the 2019 Nobel Prize in Physics with one half to James Peebles for theoretical discoveries in physical cosmology. What an incredible moment for Dr. Peebles and for our university community. And what a privilege to have him come home to Manitoba to engage with us and speak about his life and inspiring work. Hi. I'm Tavleen King, and I'm proud to be a second-year University of Manitoba science student and an aspiring astrophysicist. In the conversation you're about to hear, UM Faculty of Science alum Dr. James Peebles sits down with President Benarosh to discuss our evolving understanding of the universe and the importance of dreaming big. I love Dr. Peebles' answer to the President's last question, what is the next mystery that intrigues you? Enjoy this brilliant discussion, and I'll check back in with you at the end. Well, welcome. It's really such a pleasure to sit down with Dr. Peebles, a Nobel laureate and an esteemed graduate of the University of Manitoba. I've been looking forward to this conversation since I heard you were coming, and thank you again for doing this. You are one of the world's foremost thinkers. You spent your career thinking about big ideas, mm -hmm. and so big, in fact, that they shed light on the fundamental nature of the universe. And yet, you had fairly humble beginnings here in Winnipeg, growing up in a modest home in Winnipeg. And, mm -hmm. But you did graduate valedictorian from Glenlawn Collegiate mm -hmm. in 1953, amongst the class of 15, from what I understand. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your work and some of the discoveries you received the Nobel Prize for. And, and there seems to be so many fundamental unknowns in cosmology. Do you think someone will, you know, maybe in this room will live to see scientists grasp what dark matter and energy are? Of course we hope that, and you never know. I mean, you could pick up the paper tomorrow. This mystery is solved. A big detection at a big accelerator, a big underground observatory. You know in Sudbury, Ontario, a massive iron meteorite crashed two meters, two kilometers into the Earth, leaving a long streak of iron and nickel 
the nickel worth immense amounts of money. The result was a very deep mine where you're well exposed, well shielded from cosmic rays, and where detectors are being set up that will look to try to detect this dark matter. One day, maybe tomorrow, there'll be a detection, or maybe not. You have to remember that no one issued us a guarantee that we can make sense of the world around us. And of course, there are many aspects in which we still can't make sense. But we do have a lot of basic science that has been very well established and has made sense of some aspects of the world around us. Maybe that'll continue. We have no guarantee that anyone will ever discover what that dark matter is. I introduced dark matter to cosmology in 1982 because otherwise it was impossible to understand, reconcile two observations. First, although the universe is uniform in the large-scale average, it is distinctly clumpy. You and I are examples. The galaxy is an example. It's an extreme departure from uniformity. The universe is lumpy. It is filled with a sea of thermal radiation that is remarkably smooth. And the only way I could see to reconcile the two with the physics that best seems to describe the evolving universe is to postulate that most of the matter in our universe is not the stuff you and I are made of, but a hypothetical stuff that others came to call dark matter. I didn't give it a name, but simply a postulate that it's there. I was, for at least a decade, very uncomfortable about the fact that people were paying a lot of attention to this idea because I thought it was only one of many viable ways to make sense of what we observe. I gave up on it. And it took, took at least a decade for me to reconcile the thought that maybe I was guessed right, and I had. Mm. <laughs> I, I somehow not sure it was a guess, but... <laughs> well, no, no. It was a very seriously informed, educated guess. <laughs> so along those, I just noticed you didn't want to call it dark matter either. And I, and I know I've read that you're, and you said it this afternoon, that you're uncomfortable with the word bang in the Big Bang. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Right. So what does a bang mean to you? To me, it means an event at a point in space at a time. And the universe isn't an event at a point. Hey, give me a break. The universe is everywhere. So it's not like an explosion in the sense that it's an event. What we know about the universe isn't an event in time. It is how the universe is evolving. We don't have a good idea of why the universe is evolving. There are ideas, of course. But what's established is the evolution from the early state to the present. Well established because the evolution left a lot of fossils. And fossils you can make sense of. Those gifts, those fossils are great gifts. They showed us evidence of what the universe was doing and gave us a theory that I think is persuasively established. But why a Big Bang? Well, I used to, when I was young and energetic, campaign for other names. Didn't work, so I gave up. I mean, you have to learn to live in the real world, and the real world likes the name Big Bang, so, well, live with it. And so what triggers the expansion? Well, we don't know. People used to think they knew, but they don't. So again, as in any aspect of physical theory, we have well-tested predictions that make a strong case that we have a good approximation to what really happened. But it's always an approximation. Hmm. So let's pick up on that thought. So I'm a theoretical economist and uh, like to apply theories 
to the world. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, we're not doing a great job as economists, but <laughs> <laughs> you've said that theories are incomplete. That's and right. Some people have criticized you for saying that or been defensive, but why have you said that? Well, you, some are offended. We think physics is objective, but it's not. I mean, it's, made, it's built by people, and we are not, I think, intrinsically objective. So to me, a complete theory would be able to answer any question that you may ask. It will predict everything. Mm -hmm. None of our theories are able to do that. We have, for example, electromagnetism. It works spectacularly, wonderfully well from giant hydroelectric plants, massive transmission lines, energy trickling into the home, going down to your cell phone, powering it, so you can push a button and talk to your friend. Spectacular. All of that works according to theory. It's beautiful. But you push that theory too far toward the structure of an atom, and you get absurd answers. The theory has failed. So we have a better theory. It's called quantum electrodynamics. It works wonderfully well, but it fails. There is a better theory called grand unification of electroweak unification. Beautiful. But it has a theory people are struggling to find that maybe a superstring theory, maybe something else, a subject for research. So we live in an incomplete world with incomplete information and incomplete theories. People are sometimes offended. My theories are so good, they should have more respect, but let's be honest. But it doesn't mean we can't use those theories. Oh, absolutely, them. absolutely. You'd be crazy to ignore the theory of how you turn on the light by switch or turning a switch. It, it always seems to work. Right. How could you ignore that? Wonderful. So you've written a, a new book that's coming out soon. And I did read that sociologists have kind of presented a critique that physical science is a social construct um, made up by authority figures, maybe yes. imposed on society. I think I'm quoting you, actually. So, it, it, you know, I'm, I'm interested in that, your response to the sociologists. Yes. And we must understand that there are many sociologists. There are some who I deeply respect who make observations about the way we do physics that are accurate and to be considered. In particular, they make the what seems to me entirely sensible remark that physics is done by people. It's a social construction. That doesn't mean that it's made up out of whole cloth. There is a school of sociologists who say, well, well, you have these ideas, you call them theories. The elite requires the junior people to learn these theories. The junior people grow up to be senior people. They require their students to learn these theories. They're all made up. And another civilization would make up different theories and they'd enforce them. And that's what science is all about. Of course, that's bunk, right? It's just plain wrong. But it's also right. When I was a graduate student, Einstein's general theory of relativity, a new theory of gravity, was in the best textbooks. I wrote my qualifying general examinations as a graduate student at Princeton University. I had to answer simple questions about general relativity theory. Yet that theory at the time was tested by only three crude experiments, one of which we now know was wrong. So it's really only two. It was a theory that was so beautiful that many influential physicists felt it was surely it had to be right. It was, in fact, a theory enforced by the elite. It really was that, 
Of course, as time went on, experiments improved, and eventually we came to see that that theory fits a vast amount of measurements. Big news in the newspapers, detection of gravitational waves a few years ago predicted by this theory. More recently, the images of the black hole in the center of our galaxy and in the center of another galaxy, M87, consistent with general relativity. A broad variety of tests show means that that theory passes and is credibly established. But when I was a graduate student, it was nothing but a social science. So some sociologists seem to have missed that very important point that we judge a theory by the success of its predictions against tests. Part of the aim of this small book was to try to draw the distinction between those sociologists who decide, well, really, physics is just a social construction from those who recognize that it is a construction, social, but tested by experiments. Those sociologists are the ones who, to me, made very clear also that in physical science, we interact and exchange information in very subtle ways. Shall I go on? A, a fascinating thing about natural science that I observed throughout my career is that when a new idea starts to circulate in the community, the odds are very good that that idea had already been expressed by someone else, but it didn't manage to circulate. A particular example that totally grabbed me was in 1977. Five papers appeared in journals, different journals, different groups of people, all proposing that there might be a form of matter that doesn't interact with ordinary matter Matter made of neutrinos. Neutrinos don't interact hardly at all with anything. They came at this idea for a variety of reasons having to do with new discoveries in particle theory. But they all made it at about the same time. And it turned out that those ideas about a new kind of matter are the ideas that I incorporated in putting dark matter into cosmology. It was that idea. So I got it without paying much attention from these papers they got the idea, who knows how? How do they each, within the space of a few months, decide that this is a good idea? I think they were communicating with each other in many ways that differ from words. The nudge, the, the shake of the press, the dismissive no. The accepted, well, really? We communicate in many ways. And I think that communication shows up in the so-called multiples in scientific discovery a name from an excellent sociologist, Robert Merton, at Columbia University. I got to have a talk with his wife, another sociologist. It was at a time when the sociologists of what people call the strong program were urging that maybe we shouldn't pay attention to all these physicists. But that's just crazy. I mean, you turn on the lights, the light goes on. There is real physics, <laughs> but there is also the sociology of physics. And my book is an attempt to bring together the two sides of the coin. And how does philosophy? Well, philosophy, well, well, you know, it, philosophy is somewhere in between physics and sociology. Philosophers wonder about the world around us. They, they wonder what we're doing in physics, and they have some sensible ideas, and they quite miss others. Again, it's this very simple point. A theory is only as good as its tests. Physicists don't help sociologists and philosophers recognize that point. We should. We should make it clear why we are sticking with some theories and just, just abandoning others. We don't do it. So the purpose of this book is to maybe help people understand this. And just 
One final question. What's the next mystery that intrigues you? Oh, well, I always have a next mystery. You saw a photograph of a galaxy. I think you would agree it's a beautiful image. It's a beautiful pattern. We evolved up to our present state without ever seeing a galaxy. Then telescopes came along, digital detectors made beautiful images. We look at them and then we say, we say well, isn't that wonderful? It's an aspect, I think, of this joy of observing what's around us. Anyway, these galaxies were, uh, it's very clear, are not behaving quite the way you would expect in the standard theory that I wrote down in 1982 and then in 1984. That theory startles me by how successful it's been. I never could believe it was that successful, and now I'm pretty sure it isn't. And there are things to learn. And one thing to learn is how galaxies got to be the way they are. Theories of how galaxies form do not really work very well, in my opinion. That's exciting, because it means we have something to learn. It would be disappointing if the theory worked. Right. <laughs> sometimes theory works, sometimes it doesn't, and wow, something to learn. Well, thank you for that, and I think that's probably one of the reasons of your success, is that you even question your own theories all the time. And thanks for sharing your latest big idea with us. And so hopefully some of the physicists in our audience will help you along this path okay. as we move forward. So I want to open it up now for questions. We do have a mic that I think we will um, bring over to people who have a question. So if you do have a question, want to raise your hand and ask. Um, we've got somebody who will come over with a mic right here. This is so fascinating. With all your studies and all your reflections and all your measurements, um, this is maybe more of a woo-woo question, but is there a galaxy or a planet or something out there that has a form of life on it like ours? How will we know? And if we can't tell, then we must live with it. I, I mentioned that in our galaxy, a typical large galaxy, the astronomers determined there must be some thousands of millions of planets around stars. Each of those planets something is doing something interesting. Many of them are just sitting there smoldering, I suppose, like Mars. But you know, Mars used to have rivers. It's hard to believe that we're the only planet that happened to harbor some sort of what we would be willing to term life. But I don't know what to say about that because I don't know how we establish there are a few planets around stars that are close enough that you could send a fleet of small rockets and they could carry cameras and we would get back information on what the surface looks like. It would be so fascinating to see. There's a nearby star with a name I sometimes can remember that has a planet that's just at the right distance from the star that the temperature is neither above boiling point of water or below the freezing point of water it's a Goldilocks star, not too hot, not too cold. Wouldn't you love to see what's on the surface of that planet? Mm -hmm. Oh, boy. Well, you know, it's only four light years away. So if you could send a rocket at a good fraction of the speed of light, it might get, take there 10 years to get there. The signal of what it saw might take another 10 years to get back. It's kind of daunting. And that's the nearest planet we know. People being as inquisitive as they are, I am betting that there will be a fleet of small rockets 
sent toward that star in hopes one of them will pass close enough to the planet to send back an image of what's on the surface. And you'll be dying to see it. Uh, but once you get that image, what do you do next? <laughs> so I think it's an important lesson to understand that we are not the masters of the universe. And we can observe much and learn much, but we can only learn what the universe allows us to see. The universe, I'm not saying, has a conscious decision not to show us things, but it's just the way it is. We cannot satisfy our curiosity endlessly. It's wonderful. I really appreciated the way you explain innovation and science. You really communicate it very, very well. And I was intrigued when you started talking about the sociology of innovation or thinking. I read a book recently by Rupert Sheldrake on presence of the past. He has a theory of morphic resonance and how we learn just by osmosis or almost indirect communication. Yes. The word osmosis is kind of appropriate. It is knowledge that diffuses with, without intention, but rather by our acts, that I think is really very real. Maybe you know about monarch butterflies. They migrate. A moving thing to me was to come across the tip of Cape May in New Jersey, and then there's Delaware down there. We came across trees covered with monarch butterflies, and we asked the ranger, what are they doing there? And he said, they're waiting for the wind to change to blow them across to Delaware. My goodness, they're waiting. <laughs> it was an intentional pause. No one butterfly thought, guys, we better stop. Instead, it was a group decision. I don't know how they arrived at it, but it reinforces my suspicion that we too, like butterflies, communicate in many ways that are not verbal or visual or intentional even. But I should pass this by a real physiologist or someone who understands these things. <laughs> I think we've come to the end of our time, Dr. Peebles. I want to thank you so much for joining us, for enlightening us, and we've really enjoyed uh, your time here. And to everybody here, thank you for joining us and hope you'll join us for our next big idea. It's Tavleen again. Wow, I hope you loved this conversation as much as I did. As a future astrophysicist, I have a lot of work and years of school ahead of me. It's inspiring to learn from a big thinker like Dr. Peebles who started here at UM and who reminds us that though we are a small part of this vast universe, we can have a meaningful impact when we follow our big ideas. There are more fascinating interviews to follow in this series. Please subscribe and give this podcast a five-star review so we can share these big ideas with the world. Thanks, Tavleen. And thank you for listening to this first episode of What's the Big Idea? What an amazing discussion with Nobel Prize winner and UM alum, Dr. James Peebles. Make sure to catch our next episode with the brilliant Dr. Marsha Anderson, Vice Dean of Indigenous Health, Social Justice, and anti-racism at the University of Manitoba. The most important contribution that the U of M can make to society at this time is to ground medical education and really all health professional education in anti-racism. 
That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to What's the Big Idea with Michael Benarosh, President and Vice Chancellor of the University of Manitoba. Visit umanitoba.ca to learn more about this leading research university and its global impact.